Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is brought to you by the sensational new 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. Head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. The new 120th anniversary Harleys have been announced today, and in this week's first segment, editor Don Williams takes us through the exciting updates to four models. The hero is probably the latest Roguelide CVO with its spectacular 120th livery and badging. In our second segment, associate editor TJ Adams chats with celebrated artist and philanthropist Andrew Hukin. Andrew chats with TJ about his life of unusual coincidences which have taken him on an unexpected and entertaining journey. Travelling through more than 100 countries, Andrew captured the flavour and essence of the world. He takes us through a few of his hair-raising stories of travel and intrigue that he has expressed visually through over 50 years of his art. He's a regular contributor to Childline Rocks in his capacity as cultural attaché for the Sons of Royalty annual motorcycle ride. And paintings of Cuba, Marrakesh, Mexico, and most recently Kerala in southern India have been auctioned off for the charity. His work has also contributed to The Prince's Trust, Heart on My Sleeve, Fight for Sight, Cancer Trusts, and many others. Andrew is a supremely talented, kind and fascinating man. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. Reputation precedes it, unmatched performance and striking style define it. We're talking about the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its raw power and unparalleled acceleration matches your own drive, while its head-turning design embodies your spirit's flair. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the Hayabusa gives riders a comprehensive collection of electronic rider aids, like the bi-directional quick shifter, the drive mode selector, launch control system, and the cruise control system that simultaneously increases performance, comfort, and rideability. While its advanced analog and TFT LCD display panel connects you to the ride like never before, blending over 20 years of tradition with innovation. Plus, it comes in three new eye-catching color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki Genuine accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate rider waits, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. Harley-Davidson has some exciting new motorcycles for their 120th anniversary. And it's kind of hard to know where to start because there's a returning model, a modification of an existing model, actually a couple of them. One of them is a motorcycle, one of them is a three-wheeler. They have the 120th anniversary specific models, which are paint jobs. You know, so there's actually quite a bit of different things to talk about. Okay. So what I'll start with, let's go big. 
I'll talk about the, the Harley Davidson breakout is back. Uh, it was first came out in 2012 and it disappeared in 2020. And now for 2023, it's back. They didn't just bring back the old breakout 114. It has now got the big 117 motor in it, which is pretty impressive. Um, you know, the Milwaukee 8 series has been great. And the 117 is, is the biggest one yet on a production bike. Uh, you know, you can still buy like stage three, stage four, different versions of the motor that's even bigger, up to 131 now. But the 117 is the biggest. It's even bigger than the uh, touring bikes. So when you take a 117, you stick it on a, a fairly bare bones street bike, you've got, you've got muscle in town. And it's got a, for instance, it's got a 240 rear tire. So it's about going in a straight line with the 240 rear and a 21-inch front it is definitely saying let's not go let's not go around that corner let's just go straight in a line and there happens to be somebody next to you when that red light turns green and they nodded at you or indicated that their vehicle might be faster well you'll have an answer for them and another change is that it has a different definitely gets a different look this time around uh, they got rid of the reasonably sized 3.7 gallon tank which which was kind of nondescript, but was there, worked as a tank. You, three and 3.7 gallons is plenty for that bike around town. I mean, you're not, the way the ergonomics are with the feet forward and arms forward, you weren't going to go for a long ride. Again, you were like coming up to the red light, looking, let's go. And then you'd go stop and have a, a beverage somewhere with someone. And that would be, you know, that was the main purpose of the breakout. And it's still set up for that but again it's set up for that better with the new 117 motor but also they've made it a bit more comfortable to go along with a new five gallon gas tank and the the gas tank i can't wait to see it in person because when you see it in pictures it looks pretty bulbous it's it's a pretty big tank it kind of reminds me of the, that airplane called the guppy which was a cargo plane that it looks like <laughs> a normal plane but it's got this big giant bottom part the tank, tank kind of reminds me of that, and I'm sure Harley wouldn't like me saying that, but that's that's what it looks like. And I think anybody that's familiar with that that aircraft would look at it and come, come, think the same thing. But it looks good. It's like it, it it had to grow on me a bit. At first, I was like, "What is that?" And then I'm looking, I'm looking, I go, "That's pretty cool." And then I looked at the old version, and the tank kind of looks small. Like, oh yeah, that kind of was like not small in a cool like peanut tank way, but just not big enough to fit the rest of the bike. And so, you know, somebody, somebody took a chance with this new tank and it'll be interesting to see what the reaction of other people. But for me, I, like I said, I was immediately like, what? And then I'm like, oh, well, wait a minute. Yeah, those guys knew what they were doing. It looks pretty cool. Okay. And, and so with this lot larger tank, you think, well, why do you put a larger tank on a bike that already had, you know, 3.7 gallon tank? you wouldn't even empty that anyway well they put new risers on it now for the handlebar now the riser is not like a vertical it's, it's like a diagonal so it's uh three quarters of an inch longer and so instead of just bringing it, the handlebar up it actually brings it back towards the rider so now the bike's going to be more comfortable to ride you're not going to have your legs out and your arms out looking cool you know going fast but not for very long uh, it looks like they have uh, updated the ergonomics again. Got to wait to ride it, but looking at those numbers, I definitely are going to going to welcome a closer 
the grips being closer to me than they were before. Uh, it, it wasn't like the bike was horribly uh, uncomfortable to ride, but the longer you rode it, the more you wanted to stop. So, <laughs> okay. so, it, so it, was, it was fine. But, you know, again, it, this was based on the bike being a very short haul motorcycle. And now they're trying to expand its, its usefulness by making it more comfortable, putting a bigger tank on it. And of course, more power, because more power is always useful. And uh, it, that's be a fun bike to ride when it comes out. Yeah, I, I went on the original breakout launch in 2012. Um, up in Northern California. And I got to say, I, I really liked it, but I definitely agree with you about comfort and, and what have you. I mean, it's a charisma bike, not really a, it's not a distance bike at all. Um, right. But it, you know, it handled adequately for, for its, you know, for its dimensions and it was enjoyable to ride. It was actually, it was lovely, but, but, uh, but definitely has its limitations due to its, its aesthetic, you know, that's all. So yeah, right. I, I, yeah. So so I, I like that. I like the fact that they've uh, they've made it a little more rideable without presumably losing too much of the charisma. Yeah, I I think that 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 yeah, it got the charisma boost by getting the Milwaukee eight one seventeen motor. There's there's doubt. your charisma. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Your bike doesn't have charisma. Well, I'm just going to twist this right this throttle, and we'll find out who has charisma. <laughs> yes, hundred percent. Hundred percent. It certainly wasn't wasn't lacking before, but but with the new motor, yeah, that's going to be that's going to make a statement. That's great. Very cool. Right. Yeah, awesome. you just have to you know make sure there's no police route. Yeah. <laughs> so the next one up, and this this one I think might be a little controversial when it gets uh, you know when people start to see it. There's a new Road Glide Three trike. Now, I think a lot of Road Glide owners of the two-wheel variety are not going to be excited to see the name road glide on a three-wheeler and it has the road glide fairing on it and basically it's the three-wheeler model which is their kind of hot rod three-wheeler it's kind of low slung it uh, doesn't have a top box uh, it's designed to look cool around town be a little sporty as sporty as these three-wheelers can be because they're not really designed for performance they're designed for somebody who wants three wheels really right and so this is the road glide three trike now they already have a a three-wheeler that's designed for long distance riding and that's right. called the tri-glide and that has a top box which means the passenger has a backrest and so it's got plenty of cargo go a long way it's got uh, a bat wing fairing rather than the shark nose of the uh, road glide so that's their their long distance touring version. The Road Glide Three Trike is the short the weekend tour because it doesn't have the top box, but it does still have the trunk. So the trunk you know carries a decent amount of cargo. Uh, the passenger is going to have to hold on to the the rider because uh, there's nothing to lean back on. Uh, but the it's got the very distinctive shark nose fairing, and inside it has the pretty sophisticated boombox GTS infotainment system. And so, you know, you get GPS, you get you connect with your phone, you play music. Uh, if you have an iPhone, it has uh, Apple CarPlay, which it should be Apple Trike Play, but they have call it Apple CarPlay. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's on a three-wheeler. Right. And and it's it runs at the Milwaukee 8114, which is still plenty. That's That's not a small or weak motor. That's that's a good a good power plant, 
but uh, like I said, it's going to be interesting to see how how Road Glide owners, the motorcycles, react to the the name being used. It's kind of like the Porsches, you know. All of a sudden, the Porsche made an SUV. Oh, wait a minute, you know what's this? Uh, you know, when you had if you had the Porsche sports car, you were excited about that. Although now, of course, nobody cares. But initially, people were up in arms because that was an outrage. But of course, <laughs> it was no big right. deal. <laughs> in right. fact, the, the Porsche SUV ended up being their biggest selling car by far. So there you go. Right. And uh, I'm sure the Road Glide 3 trike won't be the biggest selling Harley Davidson, but it looks cool. I mean, when you see it, it's got that, it's got that mix. It's, it's got the, the low-slung, three-wheeler kind of sporty mix, but then you have that beefy frame mounted fairing up front and uh i think that this is a good idea uh, i think the road putting the road glide name on it is fine i assume that soon we'll see a street glide three trike and then the street glide people can be angry initially before they get over it and realize it doesn't matter and uh so that's that's another variation this year that's that's pretty interesting now going small in the other direction there's a new Nightster Special, and it runs that uh, Revolution Max 975T motor. So it's the smaller motor, not the, the big one used in the Sportster S. And uh, basically, they made it a bit more sporty, which is good because the Sportster should be sporty because it's right there in the name. Right. It has taller handlebars that also come, they go up, they're two inches higher and an inch farther back. So it's just more, you know closer to you. So you have more, you're not leaning quite so far forward. The foot peg position, not quite mid, but not nearly all the way far forward. So it's a, you know, a little bit more comfortable to ride than the, the, the standard version. And important for a lot of people, this, this uh, Nightster Special has a passenger seat and passenger pegs. So instead of you just going alone, if you have somebody that you like to ride along with with you then you are set up for that and uh, it also has it has a lot of extra goodies it has uh, all the rider safety enhancements that Harley has the anti-lock traction control and then the the electronic downshifting <laughs> I've never been able to figure out what to call that it's like the electronic engine compression braking there's no easy way to put that but basically the electronics, we're used to having a slipper clutch where if you shift down too fast, that it stops the back wheel from, from sliding and skipping. Well, this does the same thing, but it does it by adjusting the motor to not let the back end skip and skid. So, you know, okay. it's, it, it's just, it's one of those, I, I've really wrestled, this is one of those things that I've really wrestled with as an editor is, how do we say that? in a concise way that explains to somebody who didn't know what we're talking about, what it actually means. So if anybody wants to drop me an email and tell me what I should be saying, then let me know. But the drag torque slip control system is not it. But that's, that's <laughs> what hardly, the DTSCS, you know, and that's just, and everybody has their own name for it, you know, so it's not right. like traction control and ABS. Everybody, when ABS came out, it was all, everybody knew it was ABS. So this right. is like a feature that, that a lot of people, a lot of companies have, but they all call it something different, even though it does right. the same thing. And it has Brembo brakes, has three power modes. It's got a cool four inch diameter uh, TFT screen that it's actually an interesting screen. Uh, I have a Sportster S right now 
and it has a lot of info on this little screen and very fine fonts. So sometimes it's hard to read, but the parts that you need to read, usually you can see pretty good, but still, you know, I just love TFT screens that that's, that was a big advance, you know, a big step forward in the world from LCDs to the TFTs. Yeah, it's it really awesome. was. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. I agree. So, yeah. So this Nightster special, you know, this is the kind of motorcycle that's going to appeal to me. I like the way it looks. It looks, you know, I'm going to, I think I'm going to like the small, I like the smaller engine. It's, it's a good engine. You know, it's it just more peppy. You can rev it harder. You don't have to say, oh, wow, I've got too much motor here in town. Got to be a little bit careful. This one, you can just get on the gas and stay out of trouble more and just ride it more aggressively. Is As we always know, it's more fun to ride a slow bike fast than a fast bike slow. This gives you that extra little feeling of sportiness by allowing you to rev more and just be more aggressive when you're riding it. Okay. Harley Davidson is kind of, you know, taking care of a lot of different people here. You've got the drag strip crowd with the breakout. You've got the road glide three trike for the three wheeler crowd that also want it, they want performance and they want something that they can take on a trip, but without loading it down with too much. Then you have the less expensive Nightster style, not that the bike's cheap, but you know, it's not as much as, as big inch bikes and it's more approachable to newer riders another bike that they have another three-wheeler and this isn't a big deal but they've taken the freewheeler and it's going to get blacked out and as we know blacked out is kind of the cool new thing chrome is chrome is still around and they're still offering plenty of chrome bikes but blacked out is something you pay extra for and i haven't been able to shake out of anybody harley davidson how paint is more expensive than chrome the chrome finish is less priced than the black finish so painting the bike costs more than chroming it I, 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 or they could just get more, who knows? But uh, anyway, so the, the freewheeler, they're trying to make it look a little cooler because for a lot of people, there's a stigma attached to the trikes. That's just how it is. So they're giving it a, a more aggressive, cool look. Right. And last and certainly not least is the actual 120th anniversary models. Now the six main ones, and again, these are just, these are paint jobs. You get, there's an ultra limited, a tri-glide ultra, the street glide special, the road glide special, the fat boy 114 and the heritage 114. So those are all the 120th anniversary models that get it. Uh, the street glide and the road glide come in black trim and the heritage classic 114 is gonna have a chrome trim. But the granddaddy of them all as always is the CBO road glide limited. That's the one that's the the big, the big daddy in this, in this uh, 120th anniversary model listing. Okay. So the, the big daddy in the world of the 120th anniversary models is the CVO Road Glide Limited. And that's the one that is a CVO. So right there, you have the incredible paint job. Sure. And Harley Davidson is claiming it's the most intricate paint job they've ever done on a motorcycle. Wow. That's saying a lot. Yeah. Wow. Because they've had some pretty, pretty fancy CVOs. Sure. And really, I'm just going to read what they've written, because if I try to explain it, it would not sound as good. Okay. I'll give it the sufficient gravity of the, uh, of the affair. Okay. Panels of heirloom red are applied over a base coat of anniversary black, each outlined with a bright red pinstripe and a hand applied gold paint scallop. Subtle details added within the panels portray the head and wings of a soaring eagle. The gold-plated tank medallion depicts an Art Deco rendition of the eagle, an iconic Harley-Davidson design element. 
Additional details include a luxurious Alcantara seat with golden red contrast stitching accents, gold tone powertrain inserts, and bright red rocker boxes and pushrod tube collars. So there you go. Wow. If I tried to explain that, it wouldn't be as good. <laughs> it does sound intricate though, doesn't it? Wow. It sounds like multi-layered. Right. Obviously you have to see it, but it just looks it looks spectacular. I mean, when you write that $50,000 check or whatever it's going to be, we don't have a price yet. You're going to know what you're getting. And, and it looks it looks spectacular. And there's only going to be 1,500 of them. So uh, you probably won't often be running into somebody else with one. And it gives you that that exclusivity that you, that you want. Right, right. And all of the models, all of the 120th anniversary models are red. And a lot of people squawked about the, the standard colors this year, that they're kind of dull and boring which, you know, it, it always ebbs and flows. You have these crazy colors and the people go, these colors are too crazy. They need to tone it down. And then they tone it down and go, oh, they need more exciting colors. What's wrong with these people? <laughs> so it always, it always goes back and forth, you know, and remember that venom green they had a couple of years ago. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. People hated that. Now, some people loved it. I like, I really thought it was cool, but other people hated it and then it's gone. And they're like, well, how come we don't have those exciting colors anymore? <laughs> so all of these are going to be 120th anniversary models will be, you know, what they call heirloom red. And so it's got their heirloom red with a midnight crimson fade. So, and they all get the uh, art deco Eagle tank medallion and then the embroidered seats. So it's going to be, it's going to be cool. So if you're listening to this, look at the show notes and you'll see, uh, you can see how they look because they are incredible. So that's uh, what we're getting from uh, Harley Davidson for 2023. I think a lot of their focus is going to be on their 120th anniversary celebration. You know, they're going to have events and so that. So, you know, they can only use so much in, in any given year. And if you have all that going on, you're going to sell motorcycles anyway. So, you know, we still got some, some interesting things. The breakout, very cool. The Nightster special, I think is cool. The Road Glide 3 trike is, is great. So they've, you know, expanded their model base in a, a sensible way. Like I said, just a little bit of spreading out of what's available. All good. The extra colors, that's going to get a lot of people interested right there. Uh, and the, the new CVO, and they'll probably, they'll surely we'll be seeing other CVOs. There won't be just one this year, but this is the 120th anniversary CVO is also very cool. So sounds great. As I always say, I can't wait to ride them because that's always the fun part. Looking at them is great. Riding them is more fun. And seeing how, how the new bikes work is always fascinating. Terrific. All right. Hey, thanks, Don. I really appreciate it. Okay, I will talk to you later. Reputation precedes it, unmatched performance and striking style define it. We're talking about the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its raw power and unparalleled acceleration matches your own drive, while its head-turning design embodies your spirit's flair. It comes in three new eye-catching color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki Genuine accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate rider waits, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. 
In this second segment, Associate Editor TJ Adams chats with celebrated artist Andrew Hukin. Andrew chats with TJ about his life of unusual coincidences which have taken him on an unexpected and entertaining journey. Travelling through more than 100 countries, Andrew captured the flavour and essence of the world. He takes us through a few of his hair-raising stories of travel and intrigue that he has expressed visually through over 50 years of his art. He's a regular contributor to Childline Rocks in his capacity as cultural attaché for the Sons of Royalty annual motorcycle ride. And paintings of Cuba, Marrakesh, Mexico, and most recently Kerala in southern India have been auctioned off for the charity. His work has also contributed to The Prince's Trust, Heart on My Sleeve, Fight for Sight, Cancer Trusts, and many others. Andrew is a supremely talented, kind and fascinating man. We spent most of our childhood, me and my twin brother and our dog Sally, who was a little cocker spaniel, we used to just go into the park and disappear for days on end. And uh, my parents didn't seem to bother too much because in those days, I mean, all, you know, I'm sure there were people around that weren't very pleasant, but we weren't really aware of it and we never had any problems. So we just enjoyed days out and we'd go in the park and, and build dens and things and do things that normal kids do, basically. Yeah. So I spent my time there and then I went to Stourbridge Art College and um, ended up uh, being involved with a lot of music people, including Led Zeppelin and uh, Robert Plant, who was there, and um, Traffic uh, were there and so on. And... Um, then from there, I went to Bristol to do a fine art degree, which is where I met Kathy, who's my, now my wife. So many, many years ago, we weren't, we weren't romantically linked at the time. We were just great friends. And uh, from then on, we went our separate ways. And I was, um, I got a place at the Royal College and the Slade. But I turned the Slade down in favour of the Royal College to do my uh, Master of Arts. Awesome. So I was back in. I was in London for three years, for, for the first three years of my London career, really. So you were really, the people you were mixing with, it was before they were, were really too famous, like yourself, they were all setting out. Yes, I mean, I know, yeah, I mean, it was, it, was a, it was probably one of the best times of actually doing what I was doing, because everybody seemed to be uh, going towards the arts and everything seemed to be very, very lively. And there was a big, there was a very lively scene in, in, in and around Birmingham at the time. I mean, a lot of, a lot of bands like uh, the Moody Blues, Spencer Davis Band, and all these people were emerging, and early Fleetwood Mac. And so it was, everybody was inventing and becoming, that, that whole blues thing was really starting to take effect, which then obviously then went into people like Bowie and, and so on, which is, more, which is more towards the Royal College era. So... You know, everybody was everybody was out being extremely inventive, and it was a really nice time to be at an art college because art college art college seemed to seemed to thrive with people like that. They, everybody was inventive. Everybody was trying to do something. Never, no, there was no, because there was no social media. There was no uh, there were no mobile phones. There was nothing. So you basically went to parties and got to know people and. It was, a, it was a big social event, really. I ran the Royal College discotheque 
at the time, which was quite fun. <laughs> which I really we even got a write-up in the Evening Standard saying it was the best discotheque in London. Discotheque. <laughs> it's a beautiful word. <laughs> Bit of a dirty word these days, I suppose. <laughs> Disco is even very dated. And so what were you doing when you say you ran it? Were you the, the DJ? Yeah, yeah. The disc yeah. jockey. Yes, disc jockey, yes. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it. I used to, every Friday night, we'd, uh, you know, we'd, we'd go to the record shops and we'd, we'd listen to all the new stuff and so on, and then we'd take the records and, and then take them to the discotheque on the, on the Friday night, set up, set up all the equipment and then just play along with it. And uh, it was amazing because all these new bands were, were, were emerging, like Roxy Music, which had just started. And, uh, you know, it was, a new, it was a new era and it was an exciting era to be involved in. Yeah, all very creative. Very much so. Yes, I remember going into, I mean, I know that Vivian Westwood has just died, but I remember going into a shop and meeting Malcolm McLaren and everything in the, in the King's Road. They had a place with a big clock that went backwards. I don't know if you remember it, on the, on the new King's Road, on the bend. There. I do, yes, do indeed. And I used to favour a shop there called Quasimodo. You um, had a love of motorcycles from an early age. You had a couple of old motorcycles you used to ride back when you were younger. Very, very old motorbikes, I may add. My sister was going out with a, uh, with a farmer. In fact, he was our milkman and he owned a farm. His parents owned a farm. So we, we got pally with him and we'd go up to the farm and we got an old uh, pre-war aerial 350, which was a bugger to kick over. <laughs> if you missed, it broke the back of your heel practically. And me and my brother used to ride around on this thing. And then I had a Bantam, Bantam 125 BSA. So that wasn't, that wasn't a very powerful thing. But it, they were more scrambling. Well, that was a more of a scrambling bike, really. But the old, uh, the old aerial was, uh, I mean, way to time. How we ever managed it as kids, I really have no idea. Well, they would have been antiques even back then. <laughs> I looked one up the other day and they're incredible expensive. You know, I looked it up, but when I say incredibly expensive, I mean, they're about five, six grand, some of them. Well, the classic bikes now, I mean, these classics are worth a lot more than when they were manufactured, of course. Yeah, I suppose they're like classic cars, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, it's all big business. Yeah. People are collecting them. Yeah, well, then I sort of elevated to cars, I'm afraid. So my bike, my biking was over, except when I went to Mustique to live on the island. Yes. You, so take us off when you, you'd... Um, gone through college as, as we call it in the USA through university yeah. um, how did it go from there did you start becoming a professional artist immediately what happened was uh, when I started Royal College I won two awards I won I won the Burston Award for painting in 1972 and in 1973 no, in 1972 I won the John Minton traveling scholarship now that entailed me having to go somewhere bring some drawings back and then give them to the Tate. And uh, that was a foundation that, uh, that they were giving away bursaries for people to travel. So really that gave me the first inkling of traveling. So I went to the Greek islands. And then from the following year, I went to the Greek islands of Turkey and Cyprus and so on. The more I traveled, I got the, the, I got the, the really the wanderlust for it. And I just thought, well, not only that, I thought when I leave the, when I leave the Royal College, to actually start uh, working in some sort of field, I thought I, travel was definitely the one that really influenced me most. 
And the more I travelled, the more influenced I became by it. Which what people might not realise now, younger people listening, travel back then was not going and staying in a, an, an upmarket hotel. It was more unusual back then. It's definitely not. I mean, I've spent the last 50 years travelling the world over with over 100 countries. And I've always travelled alone when I work. I would go away, I'd pick a, pick a location, and I would do, usually try and pick locations that nobody had been to before. And in the days when I, when I did pick those locations, nobody had been to them. I mean, I was the first person allowed into Vietnam on their own, unauthorised. And that was, I, I landed in Vietnam the day the Gulf, first Gulf War ended, which was the 1st of March, 1991. Wow. 30-odd years ago, 33 years ago. I, I, mean, I would go to various places. I mean, I went to the Amazon uh, in 1989. So that's quite a long time ago, too, when I think about it. But I would always go alone because going alone, you see more. You know, if you're with somebody and, you, and you're in a restaurant or you go or you go out for a drink or whatever, you're generally talking to the other person. If you travel alone, you notice everything around you. And not only that, if you're in dangerous places, you have to be much more aware. So you do notice absolutely everything. I remember you you did have incidents. I remember you were attacked. And luckily you had your camera with you at the time. <laughs> well, you always did. but Where is it? Argentina. Yeah, I think I told you about that. And I had a long lens on the camera. And I was in this god-awful small cowboy town. I can't even remember the name of it. Somewhere, somewhere just north of Tierra del Fuego, which is the island of fire, which is this southernmost point of the tip of South America. Just, just off Antarctica, and I was travelling north, and I'd landed in this one-horse town, basically to get a connection to the next flight. And as I was walking along, I had my camera in my shoulder and the camera strap, and the next thing I knew, somebody was tugging at it. So I sort of, I dropped this camera strap onto my wrist and swung it rather like a, you know, actually, actually would with a uh, catapult, and the but the camera was so heavy that it actually bent the, the tungsten lens, but it knocked the guy out. And as soon as it, Good shot. As soon as it knocked the guy out on the floor, this crowd started to, young guys started to crowd around me, and I thought, this is really going to get quite nasty. And literally as that happened, there was a lady walking past saying, I saw what happened, but I phoned the police. And literally within about uh, probably five minutes, there was a meat wagon, police... Uh, uh, Black Mariah, or the equivalent of, pulled up, got hold of the guy who was just starting to come round, bundled him into the back of this caged van and shot off. And she just turned around to me and she said, you don't have to worry because you won't see him again. <laughs> right. So that's the way they sorted things, especially for, uh, I guess, for a foreigner, they would want the, the best service possible. Exactly. Yeah. And I found, and in fact, Bear in mind that we hadn't long mm. been at war with Argentina, so there was a certain animosity towards me at the time. So I had to be very careful. I had to make, I made out as an Australian, to be honest. And uh, <laughs> I got into a bar and they asked me if I was English. I told them, I put on my best Australian accent and say, no, actually, I'm Australian. Well, that's one of the beauties of coming from Birmingham. You can't be, you can't be mistaken for an Aussie. <laughs> <laughs> So you had a few little uh, helping yeah. helping images for when you were travelling because what people listening won't realise is you do have long blonde hair and, of course, from behind. 
And if they're hearing this Aussie accent and seeing this long blonde hair. That's it's Turkey, I'm afraid. Tur or, or Turkey, or in fact the Far East, or not the Far East, the Middle East. You know, because Arabs really quite like blondes. And if you're a guy and then you're mistaken for, for a girl from behind, then you've got to be extra careful. So, you know, I had a few incidents there which, uh, which really aren't worth talking about, but they did, yeah. they did actually get a bit, <laughs> a little unnerving. So you were really bringing, uh, because it was more innovative in those days to travel to these unusual places, you were bringing a piece of that culture back via your observations and your recording on your sketchings and your sketchbooks. And then you, you'd show them in London each year. And that's by this time, I also had developed my modelling career and gone out into yes. uh, running my agency I had an agency for attractive personnel and so then I was supplying girls for you in the nicest possible way <laughs> to yeah, hostess kind of <laughs> it does sound terrible doesn't it because <laughs> so I was uh, a gallery in uh, Mayfair called Hamilton's which was a really beautiful gallery a big gallery if you remember rightly and I remember at the time when you were modeling for me and you started your modeling uh, agency I remember saying to you that when I first went to Hamilton's, they had all these young doctors serving drinks because the guy who actually ran Hamilton's was gay. So he had hired mm. young doctors to come and hand drinks out during the private views. And I said, well, if I'm going to do my own thing, I'd rather have young girls. So I Yes, not that there's anything wrong with young doctors. No. Well, <laughs> but... People tend to be more receptive, I think, to, um, you know, a smiling female. That's just more usual, if I'm allowed to say that, in this non-PC world. But still, yes, I agree with you. Yeah. Sorry, I'm talking to you for an American audience, aren't I? Um, it, but in my, in my opinion, I, I just preferred to have attractive young ladies serving drinks for me. And that was the way that that's the way I wanted to present my persona. And that's exactly what happened. And, and in fact, actually... My, and my exhibitions became immensely uh, rewarding and also immensely um, evocative in a sense that people were more wanted to come. And I wasn't sure whether it was because of the work or because of the girls. <laughs> well, I think they became events where people wanted to be seen, if you know what I mean. There was always a flurry of like buying new dresses and this, that and the other for the ladies. Oh, definitely. And it also became, it also became a big, a big um, meeting point for a lot of the industry that were building up in Covent Garden at the time, who were all the advertising agencies. Advertising agencies were starting to come, as then so-called, um, also people like Duran Duran and people like that became uh, friends and clients. But the, it, the more people that came, the more I the paparazzi would. And once the paparazzi got hold of it, then, as you probably remember, the, the exhibitions just became almost impossible to actually to move at times. Yes, yes, you had to have that chap in uniform yes, on the door. I remember it was yes, invitation only. Yeah. Nobby. So just to go back a little bit, because I know that you um, got involved with, I'm not trying to name drop a whole lot here, but Princess Margaret and Moustique, the island she used to party on. Um, you mentioned earlier that you ended up riding around on two wheels there. So how did that come about that you ended up spending a period of time living on a beautiful little island must have been hell <laughs> during my travels and i'd done I'd done some work for vogue magazine I, I did about four or five double page spreads for vogue and um 
they had featured the St. Lucia, the Pitons in St. Lucia. Now, I didn't know where they were, and I was flipping through the magazine that I was actually in, and there was, there was a picture of the Pitons in St. Lucia, which are two volcanic, um, dormant volcanic Pitons uh, that stuck out of the water. And I just thought, gosh, where's that? I really want to go there. So I found out it was the West Indies. So I arranged to go to the West Indies. So when I was going, just before we went to the West Indies, my girlfriend and I were having dinner at a friend's house in Camden. And there was a chap sitting at the table who introduced himself as David Dunn. And he said to me, he said, oh, I live in the Caribbean. I'm the, uh, I'm the chef in Mustique, private chef in Mustique. And I said, well, where the hell's Mustique? Nobody had ever heard of it. And he said it was a private island owned by Colin Tennant at the time, who later became Lord Glenconnor. Uh, anyway, I, we ended up going to see him whilst we were there. And he said to me, he said, well, if you're doing an exhibition, you're going to include a couple of pictures of, of the island. Send him an invitation when you do your exhibition in Cork Street, so, which I did. And the next thing I knew, I got a, a letter from him saying he'd been to my exhibition really liked the work, and would I go and see him? He had an interesting uh, prospect to, give, to offer me. So I went along to see him, and he was living in Tide Street at the time, most beautiful house. And fortunately, I was about five minutes early to see him. Now, little did I know at the time that he was a stickler for people being on time. That's a parade I have now become, and always have been. You know, I mean, to be, to be punctual is a great asset. In, in any in any form of business anyway th thankfully i was on time because it was only later that i found out that if you were late to meet him he wouldn't see you that was it that was the end of huh anyway eventually i got there and he said to me look i'm having a series of birthday parties on the island must eat that i own and i'm inviting certain people he said i've got a, i've got a filmmaker i've got two i've got uh, photographer, I've got um, Patrick Litchfield, I've got uh, Robert Maplethorpe from New York, I've got, I've got all these celebrity people, all artists, but I don't have a painter. Would you be interested in, in coming and, and painting these, the parts of this series of parties that I'm going to have? And at the time, my girlfriend and I were going through a rough time. Her brother had just died from cancer, and I was at a bit of a low because of all this happening, and I just thought, bugger it why not so i had to make a decision whether to leave i was i was just starting to get my name recognized in the art world in london yes so working for vogue quite on a regular basis and i thought now do i leave that and go to the island take that choice so i took the risk and i just thought okay i'm going to try it i can always come back and hopefully rejuvenate what i've what i've already left here one of those Forks in the road that you sometimes come across in life. I remember my father saying to me, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> <laughs> take the obscure one. <laughs> that was it. Just take it. And you think, what's he talking about? Oh, really? And I just realised, I really took a long time for me to realise that's exactly it. You know, hell knows. You know, in other words, whichever one you take is going to be the right or the wrong. So it doesn't matter. Anyway, fortunately, it turned out it was the right one. Because it, it changed my life immeasurably, without a doubt. In retrospect, looking back on it, I don't know really what would have happened had I continued with my, my sister way that I was doing in London prior to that. But I met I met so many different and influential people, as you quite rightly said. I, 
Princess Margaret, uh, um, Jagger, I mean, Prince Lowenstein, uh, Armit Ertigan. I mean, you name it, they were, they were, everybody was there. So not only the top people to record these events in the island were employed by Colin Tennant, or was he Lord Colin Tennant by then, also the guests sound pretty amazing. The party went on for nearly two weeks. I mean, it was, it was most, uh, I was, I mean, it was really quite bizarre. And of course, then later on with the Queen's Jubilee in 77, which I was there and I had dinner with the Queen, had lunch with the Queen, which was rather Wow. Alongside with Oliver Messel, who designed the majority of the houses on the island in Mystique. Uh, it, was, it was a fascinating place to be. And your house was? My house was built of bamboo. And it was, a, it was, on, it was on the highest point to the, of, of the island. Well, not the highest point, but one of the highest points of the island. And it's where the planes used to come in and they used to turn their engine off to be able to land because there was a dip down after you came over. If you came over, if you were sitting in my house that had no windows, if you sat in my house, you could see the people on the little island of planes. You could see who was in the, in the plane. Wow. So that was quite extraordinary. So you nipped on your little moped and rode over to the airport, I guess, when you saw a plane coming in. Well, I, got to know, I got to know the pilots very well. And there was one pilot called Jonathan who, who flew Tropic Air. And I would say to him, next time you're coming in, let me know because I need to go to St. Vincent, which was the neighbouring island. So I, he, I would see him come in. I would be able to get on my motorbike, go down to the end of the airstrip, to, to, to the far end of the airstrip. So his plane had already landed, gone down, turned around, dropped his people off, and then coming back again to take off. Are you with me? So that yes. <laughs> when he came back to turn around to take off, he'd turn one prop off, I'd leave my motorbike there and I'd get in to the airport. <laughs> I'll tell you what else wouldn't happen, whether it still happens or not. His great trick was he used to drop people off and then they would, by the time they got to the Cotton House and had their first drink, the Cotton House was the only hotel on the island at the time, and uh, they would be sitting down having a drink. But he had this, he had this weird trick. Of being, he could actually fly upside down and he would fly past the Cotton House. And people say, that's the person who just bought that's the flight pilot you've just flown in with. I don't know if that would be reassuring or it would be um, <laughs> concerning, but at least you'd have a, you'd have a drink in your hand. It was quite a trick. I've never seen it done before, to be honest. I haven't seen it done since, thank God. Yeah, fun. But it was a great, it was a great place to be, and I was there for three years, so, and I got to know everybody and everything, so it was, it was wonderful. And I saw him in, um, I mean, your paintings have marvellous names, really intriguing. And uh, that was the Macaroni Beach, was it? Yes, it, it was called Macaroni Beach, yes. Life, life is a minestrone on macaroni. <laughs> Fun. I've always enjoyed titles because ever since uh, I was influenced by Bob Dylan in the very, very early days, early 60s, I always used to think to myself, here's a man who actually, paint, who actually paints images with words. And I thought, well... In a way, I'm painting. I'm painting the image now. I'll give. The, I'll put the words to the image. So sometimes the, the 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 words would enhance the image, and vice versa. I have actually sold pictures purely on the title of a picture, wow. which is uh, amusing. You know, because there's nothing worse than going into a gallery, and you look around and you look at the picture and you look at, alongside it, and it says untitled. <laughs> August 93 or something like that. Yeah, or Horses at Sunset. <laughs> well, 
even even that gives you an indication of what it's about. It's <laughs> true. It's untitled, and you think, "Are you looking at it?" Well, come on, give me a, give me a few more clues, will you? Particularly if you're painting, <laughs> if it's abstract, then I suppose you can call in anything. I just think uh, the more clues that you can give somebody to why, or or throw them another line, so they think differently. You know, if you if you put a black painting on the wall and you say white. You've already you've already triggered their their thought process thinking well, why is it mm. you know they start to question it if it's just called black you think oh well yeah it is so it, it's it's a thought process really it just adds to it adds to the intrigue I think I think so too and you've been to over a hundred countries now yeah sadly COVID sort of brought that to a bit of a halt but uh, now I'm going to start start again really but I, I've now. Finding it hard. I, I did have Russia on my list, but I don't think I'll be going there just now. No, I'd hold back on that one for now. <laughs> so you you had another sort of pause, let's say. You had a, a major health incident, um, to summarise, a fatty liver, which is uh, just something that can happen. Um, but you were overseas when you became so unwell. You, you were... I was in Barbados, actually, and I had to be... Uh airlifted back to England. Mind you, prior to that, I'd spent 10 days in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in, in Barbados, which you really don't want to do in the height of summer. Air conditioning and, uh, and very little... Uh, it, was, it was pretty <laughs> awful, let's put it like that. Just not a particularly sanitary place, I guess. So eventually I was airlifted and uh, came back to England and had a, had a liver transplant in 2010, thankfully. Congratulations. I mean, that's yeah, I know it's it's um, the organ donor thing always obviously has that complete sad side of things. But um, I know you're extremely grateful to get a, a new liver and for it to take and all the risks that go with that. And uh, it sort of changed your um, art quite significantly at the time. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose it did. But it's only now that I look back on it that I can actually see that change. You probably noticed it more than I did. Oh, yes. I saw it as a transition, as far as I was concerned, because I feel as though I'm, I'm developing all the time. I don't feel as though I'm standing still at all. And everything I do is news. But the, the people definitely notice a big transition, yes. I, I... Well, you've, you've written a fabulous book. Well, this, this has taken years. It's called Before the Paint Dries, and I'm going to put a link in for that because you know out of interest people can see what your style is and and your paintings you sort of looked as though you were going to actually not make it for quite a while and then you blossomed and um ended up being on that big sailing yeah. vessel that big sailing ship well in 2000 and, uh, 2012 i was offered a um, a commission to go on to a um, silalona and that's the name of the yacht Basically, it was a it was a Phoenician-style uh, sailing vessel, 167 feet long and 50 feet wide, and it was a copy of the sailing boats that used to bring the all the spices across from the Indi from the Far East to Africa and to the Great Britain. So it was a complete copy of one of those, and it was built. Took four years to build it in the mangrove swamps in, uh, in Southeast Asia. And it's the most beautiful boat. And when I say a boat, I mean, it really is. It's the only black sail yacht, boat, whatever, Phoenician style, uh, sailing in the whole of the world. Wow. Beautiful, beautiful boat. And I was there for, I went on two voyages. 
first of all, I went on the first voyage, which goes encompasses the south from from uh, Jakarta, Java, uh, down through Bali, um, and and the southern the southern Indonesian islands, all across to Papua New Guinea. And on the second voyage, uh, we did the northern islands from the northern Indonesian islands, ending up in Papua New Guinea, where we uh, actually lived with the Dani tribe for a week. That was a that was quite a quite an event because uh, they're very uh, quite a remote tribe in Papua, and uh, living with them was really quite different because they they're very very primitive. They only they only food with potatoes, believe it or not. So they haven't embraced modern, the modern world at all. They're living as they would have been years ago. No electricity, no, no, no nothing. You know, absolutely nothing. And uh, basically they sleep with their pigs. Right. So that's really back to, yeah, back to basics. Girls who uh, was, work, was with us, who worked for a company for the National Geographic, they were a diving company. So they did all the filming under, underwater. And they had a company called Bitten by Sharks. And they've both been bitten by sharks. Both had big, gosh, huge gouges taken out of them. In fact, their their actual credit, their actual calling card, they gave they gave me. It had to bite out of the corner. <laughs> wow, impressive card. And uh, well, she got bubonic plague, and she had to go back to Germany. Wow. So you were commissioned on this voyage to paint places and to paint this beautiful vessel. Yes, it's to produce a book. Yes. I've got one of them. Uh, which we did called the uh, sketchbook. That I, I'd done a sketchbook in Vietnam. And uh, one of the reasons that uh, that the lady, Patty Siri, who, who owned the company and owned the boat, the reason that she actually asked me to do it uh, was because at a lunch I had with her prior to, prior to the commission, I'd given her one of my books as a, as a present. I said, look, this is, this is really what I'm about. All the watercolours that were in it were done from from uh, the Mekong Delta, or from or from the lakes in uh, Dalat, in in Vietnam, and so she, that really intrigued her the fact that I'd actually use the water as I did do when I was in the Amazon and when I was in the Nile. So you paint with the local famous water, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It just gives an authentication, as far as I was concerned. And I just thought it's actually nice to actually have a picture that you know has been painted with the water of the Nile or the water of the Amazon. So when, when I went to do her book, we did the, the, a similar thing. Uh, I would do the, I would pick the water from two oceans, from the Pacific and from the Indian Ocean and from the South China Sea. So a lot of those watercolors are all done with those different oceans, waters. And then we had the book printed in, in Bangkok. And uh, it was, sorry, in Bali, not Bangkok, Bali. and. Uh, and then we put on an exhibition in Cork Street to present it. Did you go to that? I'm not sure you came to that. I didn't, know. I must have been overseas. I've come and gone myself a bit. It's amazing how uh, we've known each other so many years and our lives remained interweaved. And yet we've both been all over the world in different places. I mean, there you are in London and here I am sitting in California at the moment. In Australia too. Yes, you did. You came to see me there. I mean, the jobs that we did together, you, um, your uh, studio, you moved again um, to Wimbledon. I remember, you know, you took me to amazing places in London. We went to 
underground pubs, real spit and sawdust places. You showed me the world where we saw strippers with snakes and boxing matches and all sorts, all good uh, character forming stuff. Um, you took us to to lunch, um, you know, with, with scouting around the local area. Um, we went to a a caravan where a guy was tossing burgers and serving, you know, fried eggs on toast and cups of coffee. And when you introduced me, it turns out he was one of the Richardson gang. So there were two main gangs, the Craze and the Richardsons. And this is obviously some years on. So he was sort of a mature guy, but he was scary. He was like brick top from lock, stock and two smoking barrels. Um, but anyway, he was nice to us. I was pleased to see. <laughs> it was nice to, nice to me, yeah. Nice to us, yeah. And uh, no, he he carried he got a sawn off shotgun under the counter. <laughs> his, his great his grandfather was the man who used to nail people to the floor. Wow. And they were the they were the gang that fought the craze. The craze ran East London and uh North East London and South East London, and the and the, the Richardsons did uh West London and South, South and West London. So they, they were the, they were opposing teams, and they they say that. Craze are the most famous, but the Richardsons were far more evil, apparently. Wow. So anyway, as you say, stay, stay on the right side, really. You're on the right side, so you would have been feeling really safe there with your studio next door to somebody like that. <laughs> you had a murder here once. Did I tell you about that? No, go on. I had a party here, and uh, one night, it was a Christmas party. At the studio, yeah. Jerry and Maha, whom you know, who were my travel agents, uh, turned up and they said the police are outside. I mean, oh dear, that's all I need is the police with all the people that all the people that I knew drank quite heavily, so we had to be very very careful. And, they, and so I went out to see the police and I said, "What's going on?" And he said, "Well, there's been a murder." And I said, "Look, I'm having a party." So he was stopping everybody coming in and out and asking them where they were going or who they were. And I said, "Well, that's not really conducive to, to my people having having a good time for a Christmas party." And he said, well, don't worry, we won't stop anybody. We won't stop. We're not after anybody tonight. We're only after one thing. We're, we're uh, investigating a murder. Well, it was only about three days later that I spoke to John Richardson and I said, what happened? And he said, well, there's a chap who lived in the caravan down the road here. Have I not told you this? No, go on. The chap in the road, they found out that he was a paedophile. Oh. There's only one way we deal with paedophiles here. And the caravan had been burnt out. Well, I won't tell you what, tell you what they did to him, because it's not very nice, but uh, he was definitely, they were definitely responsible, I should imagine. So that's the way the Richardsons dealt with things, I guess. Yeah, Jeez. But it was certainly, it, let's put it like this, it was certainly the underworld. Yeah. I'll make no comment on uh, paedophiles, but uh, all I can say is best get rid of them. <laughs> mm. You also... Um, Actually, talking of criminals, let's bring it up now. You also had a really good relationship with famous in England, and I hope people here have heard of the great train robber Ronnie Biggs. That's right. Yeah, yeah. My my solicitor um, had one a uh, had gone to an auction and bid on a book. It was called um, Great Train Robbery or something. Some it was about the Great Train Robbery. I can't remember the name. But it's in it's in my book anyway, and. Um, it, it was signed by every one of the train robbers, with the exception of one. It was Mr. Ronnie Biggs, who was obviously the, uh, the, the our, our country's most famous um, fugitive, living in Rio. And I was going to Brazil, and he, my solicitor, at dinner one evening, 
said to me, you're going to Brazil. He said, I'll bet you that you can't get this book signed by Ronnie to complete, complete the signatures. And I said, well, I will, but, you know, let's put a price on it. And he, I, he said, I'll bet you $100 you can't, you can't get it done. I said, okay, done. So I took the book and, of course, I read it on the air. It gave me something to read on the airplane. So when I got to Brazil and I met with a couple of guys there and I just said to one of them, who was looking after me and making sure I got to the Amazon on time and so on, organised quite a few things here and there. I said, can you get hold of Ronnie Biggs for me? By the time I come back from the Amazon, I'll be staying at Copacabana, Copacabana Palace. He said, okay, I'll sort it for you. I'll try and sort it for you. When I got back from the Amazon, uh, I went to Co I went to the Copacabana Palace to where I'm from. And one morning I was walking out, the guy said, there's a message for you in your, in your box here with your keys. So I looked at it and it had an address on it, a phone number. And, I, and it just said, Ronnie. And I thought this can't be it, but, but I found it. And of course it was him. Wow. Long story short, we arranged it. He said to me, come and see me. Bring, bring the book, because I told him why. He said, bring the book. Don't when you get the taxi, don't tell him who you're going to see. Just give him the address and tell him where to come to and drop you and leave you there. Just to let people know, so he was the only one of the gang who, this in, enormously famous train robbery in England, he was the only one who um, got away and moved overseas and therefore he couldn't, in those times, be extradited. So he didn't want anybody to find him. No, he lived in Australia for 15 years. And then before he came to Brazil. And then he did a very, he did a very, very clever thing to, to be extradited, to prevent him being extradited from Brazil. He fathered a Brazilian child. Yeah, so he got married and had a family there and they wouldn't be, they couldn't touch him. No, he just, he just fathered the child. But, because um, he was already married, he left his wife in Australia. And, uh, but Mike, his son, who I still keep in touch with, is uh, now living back in Brazil because he came to live in London for quite a long time. But the main thing is with Ronnie, I always kept up a rapport with him. And uh, he and I sort of became quite friendly. And I said to him, uh, I ought to do a portrait of you. So, I, so I, when I got home, I said, look, I've got an idea how to do this. I got one of the old five pound notes from the treasury. Uh, to, they actually bought it around in, they brought it round with armed guards to the studio, Chelsea Harbour, and the big white fiver, which is which is what they stole basically on the on the in the train ride, two and a half million quid's worth. And um, these were the these were the ones that they were taking to be burnt before they released the new fires. So I got hold of this, I scanned it, and I made up a portrait of his of two and a half million of these images to build up his face. The idea was, I said to Ronnie, you sign it and I'll sign it to authenticate it and we'll go halves on what I sell it for. So I'm, I did the portrait. I then had to get the portrait to Rio for Ronnie to sign, to come back again for me to sign to sell. So I said to Ronnie one day, and, and of course, every Christmas, every Christmas, uh, he would phone up and he would say, well, where's my Christmas pudding? Because Kathy and Lara used to make him a Christmas pudding. And one year as a joke, I put a file in it. This is the day before they used to scan what was going on the aeroplane. So it's pre, pre everything else that's going on. So I put it in a Fortnum and Mason's 
you know, ceramic bowl. Right. I said, I've got the prints ready and I've also got your pudding. I said, how do I get them to you? And he said, well, I've got a friend coming over to see me for Christmas. He said, can you meet him at, at uh, Terminal 5 at Heathrow to meet Barry Flight? And I said, well, yeah, I can. I said, how will I know him? He said, he's got one arm. <laughs> so immediately I said, oh, arm robbery, was it? So he, but he got there before I did with the joke. Anyway, when I got to the Barry uh, airline, to the bar to find this guy, he was sitting there rolling a cigarette with one, and he literally had one arm. He was sitting rolling a cigarette. And I said, how, Ronnie, how will he know me? And he said, oh, don't worry, he'll know you. I've explained what you look like. <laughs> so I walked into this bar, I knew who he was, and he knew who I was. I gave him the pudding, and I gave him the prints. The flight on the way to Rio, because he only had one arm, he couldn't put the pudding in the overhead locker, because there was no room. So the guy in front of him said, can I help you, sir? And he said, yes, could you put this in the locker? So the guy said he couldn't put it in his locker. So he put it in his locker. The, the man who had helped him, he said, put it in my locker. All right, tell me that when you, when you get off, I'll bring it for you. So on the way over, apparently the pudding fell out and knocked this bloke out. Oh. About three weeks later, David, my agent, said to me, he said, have you read the Evening Standard? I said, no. He said, it's this... Fortnum and, Mason, Fortnum and Mason pudding knocks out flyer on en route to Brazil. Now, the one, thing, the one thing they missed was, firstly, they didn't know who it was destined for. If they'd have known that, there would have been Ellen. Yeah. And secondly, if they'd have known there was a file in it, it would have even made a better story. Yeah, somebody would have been in big trouble. <laughs> so anyway, we sold, we, sold the, we sold the prints. I think I've got one left, which is number I've got number one. He had number two. and. Uh, did you have one? Crikey. No. No, I did not. I remember seeing it. I did not. Yeah, it was a big um, portrait of Ronnie's face. How amazing. I've always managed to across people like that. I don't, I, yeah, purely by coincidence, really, or by, oh, by fate, I don't know. Well, I know I met quite a few people um, via you. Um, I mean, paintings were sold, I think, a couple of my paintings went to um, Jack Nicholson, and then I met Michael. Kane at your studio well we met him actually in the canteen of the restaurant in Chelsea Harbour where your studio was that's right his beautiful wife yeah Shakira fun days yeah they were indeed yeah so you obviously um went to America a lot over the years I remember you doing that I remember you coming over to LA to paint and that's right yeah glorious paintings for in in different um exhibitions and then you came over for a bike run. So your good friend Daryl, your finance guy um, there, he um, set up charity runs under the guise of the Sons of Royalty. It was all a huge amount of fun. He he had a great way of uh, um, getting people together, lots of musicians, and um, organising people and assigning them <laughs> different roles. And you were the, who were you? What was your title? He said to me, he said, I'm going to get you involved in child life. And I said, how the hell am I going to get involved in child life? And he said, I don't know. He said, well, think of something. And I said, well, the only thing I could do, I could be the cultural attaché. <laughs> he said, what does that entail? I said, well, the thing is that you pick all these places to go. I said, I've been to the majority of the places you want to go to. For example, uh, Cuba. They wanted to go to Cuba. And I said, well, I've been to Cuba twice. I said, I know all the best bars. I know all the best places to go to. So he mentioned this to Rod Smallwood, who was the, uh, who was the manager, the 
a tour manager for my Iron Maiden. And Rod sort of came to one of my exhibitions, bought a picture. We got to know each other. We, we liked each other. And he said, yeah, okay, fine. You, you, can, be the, uh, you can be the cultural attaché. So I'd go on ahead to arrange stuff for them. So when the other guys all came, I'd have, I'd have picked the restaurants, the bars or clubs or whatever. Awesome. I did dance several places. I did Mexico. I did I, I, oh, all sorts of places. But The Sons of Royalty, have, they, they ride um, Harley Davidson's, just to let people know, uh, thousands of miles, uh, annual rides each year in uh, different places. And they've been all around the States, across the States. Uh, and famously, one time you ended up in the, the um, Blues Bar, Bar Zero, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Grand Grand Zero Blues Bar. Yeah, no. Grand Zero Blues Bar. I did them on the trip from from uh, New New Orleans to uh, to Memphis, and uh, yeah, we ended up in Clarksville, and uh, which is the Grand Zero Blues Club, uh, which is an amazing place. I, I stayed there the night. They stayed at a at a, a little farm just outside there, which I can't remember the name. It's quite famous, but there wasn't enough room there, so I actually said I elected to stay at the club. And, uh, well, I don't know why I bothered getting a room because I didn't get any sleep that night. <laughs> With it being just over the club, but the actual room itself is amazing. Graffiti everywhere. And, in fact, so much so, I couldn't find my bloody room. <laughs> I really said it's number seven. Well, you go into it, you go into this hallway of graffiti with numbers everywhere. You can't find... Anyway, eventually I did. And I opened the door and there's this tiger-skin sofa and this amazing bed. That, it was a fantastic room. I mean, I couldn't have designed it better. I'd have designed it myself. It's as though I'd designed it myself. It's all these leopard skins, uh, cushions, and it was fantastic. Yeah, that's right up your street. All you needed was a bloody palm tree. No, but it was fantastic, TJ. It was a really great place. And, of course, Morgan Freeman came there and sang with, with Bunda, who were part of the part of the guys. So he sang. Awesome. So the joint was rocking. You didn't get much sleep then because it was a beautiful room, but... With Morgan Freeman singing, and I guess it, well, it's it's his bar, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Yeah, some interest there. I'm not entirely sure how, but yes, I think he's responsible for some some of it. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I'd, I'd love to go there. We have been to New Orleans and uh, been down to Clarksville, but I didn't go to that bar. But I will aim to go there. So you've ended up, um, well, this via Daryl the. Daryl Clark, the Sons of Royalty, sort of making a lot of money for Childline Charity, which is incredible. Yeah, well, what I would do, I would, uh, uh, after each after each event, I would do a painting for them, which they would then auction again. And uh, bet between the, the riders and who, whoever else came along to the, to the functions. And generally speaking, the paintings would sell for around £10,000. That's brilliant. And all of that would go to the charity. Yeah, the lot, yeah. Fabulous. It's a nice thing to do. And I think, uh, I think very, well, very sadly, uh, Daryl passed away quite recently. And as you well know, well, I was his best man at his wedding. And I, I, uh, I just feel that um, with the, I don't know if you know anything about funeral arrangements. Tomorrow has asked that all the, not to send, not necessarily to send flowers, but to actually donate to Childline. So he's going to continue to make money for Childline after his, after his passing. Yes, well, and I understand. I mean, it's it's a huge loss, you know, losing Daryl. I understand that um, his wingman Woody is going to carry on running the events every year, and so there will be that legacy. 
which is going to benefit so many children. Awesome. Yeah. So we'll sort of um, wind it up here, I think. We've talked the hind legs off a donkey and <laughs> touched in that of your motorcycling. Um, Motors and Friends is all about anybody who's connected with motorcycles. And so we're, we're happy that you've made the time to speak with us. And I'll put a couple of links in the show notes so people can sort of have a look at what you've been up to and they'll have a look at the Sons of Royalty. Um, and we'll keep sharing, you know, the wonderful world of motorcycle guys. Okay, okay TJ. Well, great, great. Thank you very much. Cheerio.